Welcome to Free Speech Nation, the podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. I'm thrilled to welcome my guest for today, Helen Pluckrose. Helen is an author, an academic, and the founder of a new movement called Counterweight. And I'm going to go straight to you, Helen, to ask what is Counterweight, what's it all about, and why is it important? Well, a counterweight above everything is is a community. So we offer people practical advice for dealing with any kind of authoritarian, what we would call critical social justice, what most people call wokeness. Mm-hmm. If it's being imposed on them in their school, children's school, in their place of employment, in their university, how to address it. We yeah. give them information, um, moral support and So before we get into the meat of that, because there's a lot to cover within that, obviously, not least terminology, as you just said yourself, can you give us some idea of your background and uh, how you've come to this point? Because, of course, you started out in English literature, didn't you, as an academic? Yes. Well, I I studied late medieval women's religious writing because I, um, before and after the Reformation, I was interested in how women used the Christian narrative to sort of gain autonomy and authority for themselves. Um, and then everything had to be done because I was looking very much at women's experiences. I was expected to do everything through a very particular feminist lens, mm-hmm. and that wasn't the way that I wanted to do it. So all of these original sort of postmodern theories and queer theory particularly kept coming up in my studies, getting in the way of me doing the scholarship I wanted to do. Yes. And at the same time, I was an active liberal feminist, And then I found my feminism and my mother's feminism being seriously derailed by the intersectional feminists. And so these two things kind of collided together and and made me want to track and trace the, 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 the development of these postmodern ideas into the theories and the activisms that we're seeing now. That makes a lot of sense to me because I had a similar experience when I was studying English literature at university and then for my doctorate as well. Around that time, the postmodern theories, the Foucauldian theories, queer theory, all of this kind of thing was was almost like a dogma. It's just that was a given that that would be the approach, that would be the lens through which you analyse texts, mm-hmm. often at the expense of the poetry itself or often at the expense of so much about the, the literature that was important to me. So I think that's something I can, I can understand. But for the, the people listening to this podcast who may not be familiar with the idea of postmodernism and the way in which it, it kind of... Uh, I don't want to say took over universities because it sounds conspiratorial, but became very much the dominant uh, view within academia, didn't it? It did. It became the way to read things. So it, I think it's, it's best to think of it as a kind of intellectual epoch. If we understand modernity as um, a respect for science and reason and evidence and mm. empirical research, yes. then the postmodernists were over that. They believed that was naive and simplistic. They believed that truth was constructed by the powerful in the way that they talked about things. And so we have to look at these ways of talking about things, discourses, and see how they um, uphold power structures. So everything needed to be read in that way. Which lends itself to identity politics, because, of course, if you're saying, well, when we read a play like Othello, we're not reading uh, the, the play for its own sake. We're looking for how Shakespeare is upholding uh, the power of white males within the society. And that's quite a limiting perspective, isn't it? Particularly when you're talking about the arts. 
it, it's incredibly limiting. I'm, I'm glad you brought up Othello because I, I tried at postgraduate to do a reading of Othello, which countered that. Yes. And I wanted to look at um, you know racism at this point. This is 1601 and Shakespeare, as we know, is a little bit behind his times. Yeah. So racism wasn't really, it took off in that century, um, colour-based racism. Yes. So people who are reading a lot of focus into race into Shakespeare are reading anachronistically. Yes. So I wanted to argue that um, the question, why is Desdemona attracted to Othello? Well, he's a hero. Mm. He has great status. Yes. <laughs> the, he, you know, he's a military he's, leader. So he's, yeah. Yes. He's, so this, this is why. And I was told that I was problematic because I was sentencing women to a beauty myth because I suggested Othello might be attracted to Desdemona because she was young and beautiful and likely to be fertile. It doesn't seem unlikely, does it? No. And also... By by saying and pointing out that religion was still much more of a dividing line than skin colour at this time, I could potentially offend black communities in America right now. That's really interesting. So it's, it's almost as though we have to read these texts through the lens of our current preoccupations. Yes. Uh, for them to make any sense. I mean, we saw that this week. I don't know if you saw the story about the um, classics department at Cambridge, which now wants to put up signs in the archaeological museum of what next to white plaster casts of various Roman and Greek uh, prominent figures and gods and heroes explaining why they are white so that people understand that uh, they're not trying to say that or because they might give a false impression uh, that the, the ancient world was um, racially uh, homogenous. And of course, the reason they're white is because plaster casts are white when they're not painted. And so it does seem a very kind of anachronistic way of looking at this stuff. It does. And it, it used to be very much that that, that was what we weren't meant to do. Mm. We were supposed to try to suspend judgment, um, to try to get into the mindset of the times. Yes. And um, no, now we have to. I just had to, to read it through this racial, intersectional, post-colonial lens, which didn't make much sense of of Shakespeare, who is essentially a humanist with some Catholic leanings, I think. Yeah, so all of this is pushing back against liberal humanism, uh, uh, which was popular before this, this time in English literature, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and very explicitly. Yes. I mean, you'll get more criticisms of liberalism than you will of conservatism or of Marxism or of any other um, political position, and yes. liberalism is the enemy. So who is not to blame... Who are the key figures uh, within the rise of this of this postmodern worldview? Well, this is where I'll get into trouble with a lot of people because I blame Michel Foucault above all yeah. for, for all of this. However, I do also know that if he was looking at what we're seeing right now, yes. he would not be a fan of it. Exactly. He would see this as a new... Um, set of powerful dominant discourses which needed to be challenged but it's his concepts of power of knowledge and discourse which have been branched out into many different ways have been simplified bastardized into this thing now where we always have to look at power balances in everything yeah we have to understand knowledge as a tie to identity and to position in society and we have to closely scrutinize language for the harm it could be doing and in particular this idea of language constructing our perception of reality because as you point out in your book cynical theories Foucault wasn't denying that there is such a thing as reality or such a thing as truth Mm. but he's saying that our perception or understanding or, or the way that we engage with it is always dependent on linguistic constructs 
Yes, that wasn't a discovery that he made. I mean, the Enlightenment um, indicated that, you know, we were... We were already challenging meta narratives. Yes. And I think the strongest example is that the discourses around homosexuality for a long time was that it was a heinous sin. Mm. Then it was a mental disorder. Then it was something some people were, and everybody else should get over it. Yes. So those are that is a, a dramatic change. But whereas um, liberals would say, well, this represents progress. Yes. Um, the postmodernists would take this to say, well, this just shows that nothing's true because we just construct different things in different times. They don't think that we could be getting closer to that, the actual truth of a situation than an actual liberal ethical yes. position on it. And that's an interesting example, the example of homosexuality, because Foucault specifically in his history of sexuality talks about the word homosexual and how this became a, an identity category with the late 19th century medical discourses. And then the, the, the followers of Foucault seem to take this to mean that homosexuals did not exist before the word existed for them, mm. which uh, strikes me as absolute nonsense. There, was, there seems to have been an understanding, um, incorrectly, I, I strongly suspect, that homosexuality was something that people did rather than something they were yes. for a, a long time, mainly basically because of Greek traditions yeah. where um, you know, bisexuality was, was quite, um, quite normal. But mm-hmm. the evidence now shows that, that there are people who are just always going to be attracted to the same sex. That's not a, a choice. But it's, a, but it's an interesting example because it, it's, it reveals something about their obsession with language that actually the, the language matters more than the reality mm. and I know that someone like Camille Pali always talks out about how postmodernists are very ill-equipped to deal with the visual arts because they can't really cope if, if it's not to do with language they're sort of a bit at sea um, and it's very interesting as well that you mentioned that Foucault would have a problem with the current woke movement or whatever we want to call it because of course it does present a new grand narrative a new meta narrative mm. of that this is we are heading we are on the right side of history and we're heading for our utopia or whatever that might be although they never specify what it is mm. um and so much about postmodernism is against meta narratives of either religious or scientific or or whatever is that a fair assessment of that? Yeah, I, I would argue that we've seen three stages of it. Mm. So it, it's not really that it's contradicting itself, it's that it, it's explicitly changed itself. Right. So for the first postmodernists, you just needed to deconstruct everything. Yes. But once you've done that and everything's in a mess on the floor, there's not much <laughs> further you can go. So it combined in America at around 1990 with the new left kind of radical activism. Mm where they had to, said we have to have some kind of objective truth and what that objective truth is is these systems of power yeah. like white supremacy like patriarchy so we accept these to be true then we read everything through that right then over the following years this has become solidified and solidified by more and more scholarship piling on top of deeply theoretical scholarship and like like some kind of weird towering dr zeus and we've ended up with with what we called reified post Postmodernism, where it's all very, very simple, and it just is. It just is the way that we speak. The power yes. imbalance here now. You are a man, so you will obviously be thinking yourself superior right. um, to me. Um, then I have um, sort of heterosexual privilege over you, because um, that's the way things things work. So we're going, we're having to. Our whole conversation is dominated by these power imbalances that are operating between us. So what this postmodern movement has done effectively 
is to reduce everything to the notion of identity and identities being kind of uh, in competition with each other and that we make these assumptions of you just said you've got heterosexual privilege, I've got male privilege, and that's, that's at the heart of everything that's going on in this conversation. And of course, that's not true. No. That, that's a belief that, well, it feels religious, actually. It feels like a religious belief. I think that's part of what is seductive about it because reality is actually much, much more complex. Yeah. But if you can create this framework, which seems sophisticated and complex on the surface, but is actually very simple, we divide things into binaries and then we sort of see them as compounding each other. Yeah. You can just read everything through it and you don't actually have to think that much hmm. or look at individuality or class a lot of the time or yeah. environment or any of the other factors that could explain any behaviour. So you see very much uh, all of this postmodernism, which which sort of was popularised, I suppose, by the French post-structuralists of the 60s, um, as being the, the seeds of our, the current woke movement. Mm. And in the book you wrote, which I think is a really good, uh, well, it's an excellent book, it's Cynical Theories, which describes this, you know, how did we get to where we are and how a lot of this came from academia. And one of the things, the most interesting aspects, which you really emphasise, is that there were all these people theorising, Foucault, Derrida, Lyotard, all these people just, with their theories, their speculations, they weren't saying let's change society on the basis of our theorising. They weren't, they weren't doing that. And you make this point that around 1989, suddenly the academics sort of switch into activism and you call it applied postmodernism. And now what they're going to do is they're not going to sit there and theorise about it and just and quote each other as they always used to do. They're going to change uh, so they're going to apply this to society. Is that, uh, am, I, am I reading that right? That's exactly right, because I, I think the very best text, a single text for anybody wanting to understand this shift, is Kimberly Crenshaw's Mapping the Margins, 1991. Right. Yes. And um, when she describes intersectionality, which she explains in that essay, as um, contemporary politics linked with postmodern theory, yes. what she is talking about is the radical um, black tradition, mm -hmm. which has its its roots in the Black Panthers, but also in the um, sort of post-Marxist um, Frankfurt School, to a little bit. Yeah. Then linking that with these postmodern ideas of everything being a construct of power. Yeah. So she's adding all this bias and language and discourses to the radical, um, you know, sort of proactive force of the new left. Yes. And that is what has produced the, the, the next wave. So while we call the postmodernism the French um, philosophical tradition, the yeah. French call the next wave of it the American tradition, yes. and they don't own it. So a lot of it comes from America around this time, sort of late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. People like Kimberly Crenshaw... Uh, who's obviously, um, well, she, did she not coin the idea of intersectionality? The, the... She did, but interestingly, Judith Butler, who published a book around the same time, was talking about the intersections of different... Yes. Thing. And um, also, of course, Patricia Hill Collins with her Matrix of Domination is a, is a different framework for looking at the same things. And, and I think positionality is the thing that people need to understand about this. Can you define that for us? Yeah, this is when you work out, and it, it goes, can go on for paragraphs in academic essays, yes. where I would say I have white privilege, I have cisgendered privilege, and I have heterosexual privilege, um, but... I don't have male privilege, I don't have thin privilege, I don't have able-bodied privilege. Yeah. So I'm positioning myself in the ways, I, the, the, thing, the privileges that I have will limit my knowledge. 
Yes. Um, while the marginalised aspects of my identity will give me insights. So why is there that connection between the idea of marginalisation and superior knowledge or superior understanding? So in a very simple way, if you were a straight white man mm-hmm. and you believe that society is set up for straight white men, yeah. you only have to see the surface of it. Yes. But if you were a gay man or a woman operating in this society, you not only see the surface, but you also see um, more of how it affects you okay. personally. So you see a different perspective on it than if you are a black, lesbian, disabled fat transgender woman, then you're seeing more and more layers of society that these straight white men simply can't see because everything just seems, you know, it's just the water they swim in, everything seems completely normal. So this is why we will hear, listen to trans women, listen to women of colour, even though when you do actually listen to them, you find they're saying different things because they're actually individuals. Yes, I mean, they all have different experiences, (laughs) so you can't take one person's experience and extrapolate it and say, well, that's that's how it is for all people. Yeah. But I suppose that's the danger of identity politics is you start saying, well, if that's your experience, that must be all black women's experience, for instance. There is something in what Kimberly Crenshaw was originally saying about intersectionality. There is something in this idea that you can face oppression for multiple reasons at the same time. Mm. I mean, that, that's not a, an unfair. This is the thing. There are, there are kernels of truth and there are valuable kernels of truth in there. And particularly within an American context, mm. what Crenshaw was arguing was that it, it didn't work to only have racial or gender discrimination laws because there was a particular stereotype of black women which went back to slavery which said that they were um, promiscuous, sexually aggressive, verbally aggressive and all these other really negative stereotypes that might make people not want to employ them which don't apply to women who are white and they don't apply to black men. So somebody could be discriminated against because of this particular stereotype of black women and there was no law there that would make that illegal because there could still be black men in the workplace and white women in the workplace. I think there is some validity in the concept of intersectionality. And I've often said to people who who think there's no validity in it, do you think that there's um, anybody could be disadvantaged for being a straight white man? Have you ever heard anyone being insulted for being a straight white man? That's an intersection of three things. Yes. These things can compound. And if you've got these compounding privileges in this case, then a lot of the theorists will say, you just need to shut up and listen. Yeah. (laughs) So if you've got compounding marginalizations, then you are seen as having more knowledge, more status. It's called double consciousness, multiple consciousness, or kaleidoscopic consciousness. Blimey. (laughs) Yes. And they all mean the same thing. Right. <laughs> Essentially, you, yeah. yeah, you can see things on more than one level. Yes. So all of this stuff, even if we we can say that a lot of it was well intentioned, you get this conf- conflation of applied postmodernism, intersectionality starts. Uh, critical race theory is, is is arising around this time as well from legal scholars. Kimberly Crenshaw was a legal scholar, wasn't she? Yeah. Uh, is is I should say. Um, and all of this is happening. How did we get though from there? to now where i mean as you've already alluded to people just believe this now so they will they will say that this is just the 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 truth that there are that we have to see things through the lens of identity that there are privileges and power structures that we can reduce just to identity categories group identity rather than individuals how do we make that leap 
I think it, it was the 30 years of scholarship of building up and building up because this is how scholarship is meant to work. Mm. You know, when we discovered that evolution by natural selection was a reality, there were papers about it. Yeah. There are now no papers saying evolution by natural selection is a reality. We know that. There are more complex papers which take that as an assumption. Yeah. And so they look at more um, detailed aspects of it. What has happened within cultural studies is that we have taken it as, as an assumption. In the book, we called it a known known. Yeah that um, white privilege does permeate everybody's unconscious mind and so does um, patriarchy and all these other power structures. And we know this, and so then we just interpret society through it. But the problem with that is if the first step is wrong, yeah. then everything else will be wrong. And, and, and you know, the comparison with, with natural selection is interesting because that is rooted in scientific fact, which is demonstrable and has been proven. And of course, something like critical race theory, which isn't a theory in a scientific sense at all, is just an interpretative framework. If you take that, that assumption that, every, that the assumption is true, then you're setting yourself up for failure later on, aren't you? You are. And, and this is why we really, really need the critical social justice scholars to enter into dialogue with right. liberals, with Marxists, with conservatives, and actually talk about it and not just say that... I mean, this is where the idea of woke comes from, yeah. is that you can see things that other people can't, and that is quasi-religious. Yes, you're awake to something that, that other yeah. people aren't. Yeah. So it, it's very much like trying to argue with a fundamentalist Christian or, or Muslim. Yeah. You can't get past their first assumption that this particular version of God is real. So that's, that's really difficult because, you know, e even today I saw a tweet from an academic, a professor, uh, talking about um, Julie Bindle's new book about feminism. Now, it's clear that she hasn't read this book, uh, but straight, straight away she's saying, she's making a massive judgment about it, but saying, if, you are, uh, if your feminism is trans-exclusionary, you are also racist, disabledist, all the rest of it. These incredible uh, statements, and you think, well... You don't know anything about this person. You haven't even read the book. I mean, isn't that something that a child would tweet? And wh why am I seeing so many academics basically behaving like children online? I think it's because of this belief in discourses and not in truth. Right. If you see somebody like Julie Bindle who is putting out a certain set of ideas, yeah. these sets of ideas, if they are perpetuated in the world, they will be understood to harm trans people. So you immediately just have to slam them down with all the horrible words you can you can think of. It doesn't matter if they make any sense or actually apply but why to what would, was being said. Why would you not step back and think, but that is my premise right? Is it true? that Judy Bindle's work harms trans people. That's the first step. And that point of scrutiny isn't happening. It's not. I mean, this is where the, the liberal... Um I don't know, I, I don't particularly call myself a feminist now, but the liberals who sort of care about both women's rights and, and trans people's rights get very frustrated with both the extreme gender critical feminists and the trans activists who will just say, well, you're a misogynist, well, you're a transphobe. Yeah. And nobody's actually getting to the point where there is actually a conflict of interest here, where, you know, the, the gender critical feminists have a point that we need to protect women's space in sports. Mm -hmm. Trans activists have a point that trans people still face a much harder lot in, in life and a lot of discrimination. Let's try to work out something where we're not disadvantaging one group and nobody's evil if they care about any group. Yeah, and, and that's an interesting, because I, I often feel with that debate is 
people are debating from completely different definitions. So uh, uh, the, the extreme trans group will say, well, a trans woman is a woman, and they believe woman as a category, to be an identity category. Uh, whereas the feminists in this argument are saying that woman is a biological category. So the argument isn't even on the same terms. No. So you can't go anywhere because they're, they're arguing different things. No, that, that's the thing. And, and, you know, sometimes gender critical feminists will say, well, they're delusional because they'll think that they are, that trans women are women. And that, well, that's because they're not de describing, women, defining women as people who were born with female reproductive yes. systems. Yeah. You know, and I... I I've, I've tried, I've, I've given up trying to mediate at all um, between those two groups, but I am more concerned about the gender critical feminists at, at the moment because they are the ones being no platform, they are the ones being threatened with violence. It does seem to be uh, a lot of violence coming from the extreme trans lobby. A lot of the imagery is very violent, a lot of the rhetoric is very violent, and, yeah. and um, I don't know what you do with that. It's, it seems, it, 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 that's normally the point at which someone's lost the argument or at least has no further arguments to make. It doesn't feel like when someone starts using that kind of rhetoric or starts threatening violence, can you even reason with that person anymore? Is that even possible at that point? They've gone into a, a survival mode because the belief that these discourses which don't accept trans women as women um, are literally killing trans women. They're driving people to suicide. They're driving people to murder, um, erasing people. They're, yeah. they're, you know, there's a perception that this is doing extreme violence to trans people and it needs to be responded to with yeah. violence. But that's interesting as well because the language surrounding this debate seems quite histrionic. Erasing existence, um, uh, uh, words are violence, uh, that kind of thing. This is not... What's actually happening? Someone, someone saying that they believe that uh, there should be women-only spaces is not erasing anyone's existence, mm -hmm. you know. And that that, and it's almost self-perpetuating because if you start using that kind of language, you start to believe that actually this is physical threats rather than a discussion. Yeah, and this is what I think we have to to remember: the people who genuinely feel threatened, who feel traumatised, they genuinely feel like that. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's um, you know, the coddling of the American mind. That's where that is such a good book because there needs to be some empathy and sympathy for people who, particularly young people, who have taken on this ideology and then actually feel traumatised by words yeah. because they haven't been taught to argue back against them or to shrug off um, horrific abuse that nobody should be yeah. expected to put up with. But generally speaking we're yeah people are getting young people are, are being expected to tolerate less they're being told that they can tolerate less yes well you know it's interesting because uh i i was involved with a show last night which i uh, the titania mcgrath show in brighton and um someone was talking i was told afterwards someone was talking to someone there and this person was saying what is this a, par a satire of intersectionality a satire of social justice and apparently they started crying uh, when they were talking about this, as though as though the very idea of mocking this movement um, was a form of harm yeah. to them. I remember speaking to Brendan O'Neill about that. He said that he went to, to, to have it involve himself in a debate and the fact that he disagreed with someone caused them to burst into to tears. Now that's, I mean, we can mock that and say that's just overly fragile, but actually these people actually feel this, that this is dangerous to them. And that is, I don't know how you resolve that because that's not good for anyone. No, I, we just have to try and reverse the trend. I'm, I'm feeling somewhat optimistic by the the 
recent um, study which seemed to show that 13 to 16 year olds are the least in favour of cancel culture. Yeah, there's a bit of a fight back from the young. Yes. Yeah. The younger generation Z, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I know, you know, my, my, my daughter is um, certainly in that, that realm, although I, yeah. you know, I might be a relevant variable in that fact. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, yeah I'm, I'm hoping that we will see a pushback and that there will be a correction because otherwise... I mean, I, I remember as well reading um, a very uh, moving account of somebody who'd got deeply into intersectional feminism and found herself becoming more and more afraid of men. Yeah. Um, until the point where if she was in a nightclub and a man was standing too close to her and was looking at her, she would feel violated and afraid and yeah. have to go home. Yeah. And she hadn't felt that way before. And that, that was what brought me into the argument because I am very much about female empowerment. Yes. And I was getting worried about how disempowering the intersectional feminist narrative is. It tells women that they can't deal with ideas they don't like, they can't deal with obnoxious men. And it uses phrases like unsafe. This idea, this argument is unsafe. This person appearing at this debate makes us unsafe. Yeah. But of course it doesn't make you unsafe. (laughs) That's not what safety is. And that's why I think this connects to the postmodernism you were describing because of the, the undue emphasis on language. Not that language isn't powerful, but when it's elevated to the extent that suddenly it's a form of violence, uh, I think that's where it comes from. Everybody recognises that language is powerful. This is why we've always had heresy and blasphemy laws. Um, For the the Marxists, they believed that philosophy would be the way to, you know, relieve the the proletariat of their false consciousness. They believed language would bring them out of it. For liberals, the marketplace of ideas shows that we do know that language is powerful and that it can produce... And it can be hurtful. It can hurt people. Yes. No one's denying that. But there's a difference between being upset by something that you hear and being unsafe as a result of something you hear. And that's a distinction that's been muddied. You can't actually be constructed by language. Obviously, culture does have a deep impact on you, but there's such a simplistic idea of culture and discourses. We live in a culture that has many, many discourses, and we we can choose between them. So I will hear on the same day that because I'm a woman, I have been socialized into believing that I have to do domestic tasks. And then I'll hear from somebody on the right that because because I'm a woman, I will have been socialised by feminists into not wanting yeah. to do motherhood or anything. And, and I, women are not this yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> malleable. We can look at all of these discourses and then we're going to end up doing pretty much what we wanted to do anyway. That's yeah. what I've found from studying them since the 14th century. Yes. <laughs> so since we focus so much on academia, and it feels like we're saying that all of, a lot of this came from academia, but it's not in academia anymore. It's, it's outside that now. It's, it's yeah. sort of broken out. And, of course, a lot of what you're doing with Counterweight is pushing back against the fact that all major artistic, political, media institutions, uh, law enforcement even, all of these major corporations, businesses, HR departments, education, all of these things seem to be dominated by the very kind of, modern, uh, well, applied postmodernism that you were describing yeah. in terms of their policy formation, their decision-making, all of it. And yet they are still the minority view, right? So how is it that that has become the powerful discourse within society? Uh, so there's, um, 
Everybody, I don't agree with him completely, but Vivek Ramaswamy and his Woking. Yes, the new book. That is a wonderful, wonderful book looking at how this has gained cultural power. But I think from our perspective and what can be covered here is that this is just, this is the the narrative for the right side of history because we are in an, an epoch where, you know, empire has fallen, patriarchy is no more, racism is recognized as a bad thing. It was only a couple of generations ago there was Jim Crow there was no blacks no Irish so we are in a position where we want to keep fighting back at this stuff we want to achieve equality we're being told that these kind of theories are the way to do it and the fear of being thought to be racist or sexist or homophobic by people who really aren't and really abhor those things is going to silence them and is going to make them afraid to challenge it because it's it's like people can experience this like being told that they are a paedophile or a... Yeah, because, I mean, being, being called a racist is one of the worst things you can be called. And that's actually testimony to the success, success of liberalism. Yeah. Because we've reached a point where if people do think of you as a racist, you will be shunned. You're not going to get that job promotion. You're not going to have friends. You know, that, that is... And yet, it feels as though that is ignored by uh, the people who, who push this... Um, well, do we call it the woke movement? I don't know. But, but whatever we call it... Um, it's it's as though they don't recognise the progress we've made. No, they don't, and that that's the the strangest thing because there it's the progressives who fail to notice progress, mm. and they believe that there's. Um, I think they, they believe that we could get complacent and we could stop trying. So sure. they will accuse liberals um, like me of trying to preserve the status quo because I don't want revolution. I want reform. I want to keep improving things as we have been. Yes. But they believe that we need this kind of revolution, that racism hasn't gone away. It's simply changed form. It's got more deeply hidden. And we now need increasingly sophisticated theoretical methods to dig it out. And yet their methods seem to uh, exacerbate racism. Yes. From what I can see. I mean, this is what we are finding. 70% of people who come to Counterweight are employees. They're not in the academic field. Mm. Um, They haven't come up against this before. And it's affecting them. Um, in their day-to-day life, and they they just don't know what what is going on. So let's let's talk about what we call this now. I know that woke, for instance, has has had a, an odd history, you know. So it's, it comes out of the black civil rights movements of the twentieth century, and then it it started to be used by activists to describe themselves and I, I, I take that back, back to 2015 and they were often calling themselves proudly woke you know Jack Dorsey had a stay woke t-shirt on you know so this was accepted as a term I was then using it to describe the people who define themselves as woke which felt like a courtesy more than anything that's the way that they describe it but then because people started criticizing them and using the word as a critical term not even as a critical term but a descriptive term in a critical way mm. they they then started to say well woke is just a right-wing slur that has been invented by the right to attack uh, these people and sort of revised history and pretended that it was never a form of self-definition yeah so now we're in the situation where the word's kind of not very useful even if we call this the social justice movement that's not very useful either because social justice sounds like a wonderful thing that everyone would be for. Mm. You tend to use now the phrase critical social justice, which I believe originates from Robin DiAngelo, I think. Yeah, and Oslem Sensoy in um, Is Everybody Really Equal? Yeah. That's the most accurate thing to call it because, yeah, woke is African-American vernacular 
English put into the present tense for awakened. Yes. And that's how African and American vernacular English works. Yes. It's a perfectly valid term. But yes, because it was used critically, other people started to believe that it was derogatory, which is yes. how, what happens with language. I mean, I never used it in a derogatory way. I used it in a descriptive way. Yeah. But because I was being critical, it was assumed that it was, I was using it as a slur, and that's not what I, what I ever meant. I, I think it's a very, very useful term, because what it maps onto in the literature is, is the concept of critical consciousness, yes. which has its roots in, in Marxist thought, but also very much in postmodern thought, which means to have developed this critical awareness where you can see power structures that other people can't see. So yes. this idea of woke, to be able to see these power structures, is very useful for the Dis distinguishing the the critical theorists from other people who see social injustices and want to do something about them. Yes. But critical social justice, as D'Angelo and Sensoy say, they want to differentiate that from social justice because most people understand social justice as fairness and equality yeah. and treating people the same and making sure no one's disadvantaged. But they want to use a very specific theoretical approach which is rooted in... in critical theory. Yes. Is, yeah. So, we, you know, I'm I'm very, very grateful to Sensor and D'Angelo for spelling this out. Yes, yeah, I don't imagine isn't... you're grateful for much else. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, th this is what we are looking at. Critical social justice. The word critical means something like cynical. It means taking things apart to look for the power structures, confirmation bias. When you find those power structures and their white supremacy, patriarchy and all these other yeah. um, acceptable things, then you've done it right. Yes. That's what the critical approach is is and if you add that to social justice then you're taking a very cynical simplistic and identity based focus to social justice which doesn't actually seem to be being very helpful yes but of course most people don't know the phrase critical social justice no, most people know the catchy. phrase no that's the problem <laughs> and we do need a shorthand and the reason we need a shorthand is because it encapsulates so much Firstly, it's about the kind of identity-obsessed aspect of this. Then it's about the power structures and the, the emphasis on the, the, the connection of language and reality. And then it's to do with the various offshoots, uh, such as queer theory, critical race theory, uh, fat studies, disabled studies, uh, intersectional feminism. So it's all of those things. And if you just say woke, it does sort of... Because someone who is woke will subscribe to all of those things in one go. And, you know, so, someone who is identifiably woke in the way that I see it, I will know their opinions on everything because they, they tend to have a, a kind of uh, monolithic mindset about all of these things. They're reading everything through the same few principles and themes. Yes, yes. yes. That's why to have a shorthand like woke is, is helpful. But it also is probably why uh, it's in their interest to try and suggest that the word is simply a slur and no more. Yes, I mean, this is um, a tactic that we see over and over again. I mean, you've seen recently the arguments about what critical race theory is and isn't. Yes. And I, I wrote a piece about that demystifying it. If we were to be accurate, what we're looking at at the moment is um, critical theories of race, which are somewhat <laughs> difficult, different from critical race theory. But it's it, the, the difference is, uh, you know, it's an evolution. We've moved from legal studies to cultural studies. Yes. We've simplified, we've gone into plain language, and we've become very, very sure 
of um, of everything. If you read someone like Robin D'Angelo, she will use the word empirical unembarrassedly. Yes. Um, well, she cherry picks data. Yeah. She will say use terms of absolute certainty. Yes. She's not at all radically skeptical like the original postmodernists. Yeah. And yet that's because she has reified or concretized those ideas that knowledge is a construct of power, that it is constructed by the powerful. It does show itself in the way we talk about things and these ways of talking about things perpetuate that oppression. Yes. And there is something about the certainty with what, the way which she writes which has the kind of quality of a demagogue or a, 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 um, a religious zealot. So, for instance, she will say with absolute certainty, as she says in White Fragility, with absolute certainty, that if you say that class is the principal uh, means by which you are privileged, uh, that is a sign of white supremacy. And what do you even do with a claim like that? Because it's such a big claim. It's not supported by anything. It's simply asserted. Um, and I suppose it's because she's part of that mindset where you don't, you don't have to prove it. You merely have to assert, and that's it. That, that, that is where we are at the moment. And I, I think looking at D'Angelo, I've just been going through slowly her latest book, Nice Which I Racism. Read. Nice Racism. I haven't read this one. Well, I, 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 I didn't like White Fragility at all, so I'm not looking forward to this one. But I suppose I will have to read it. Yes. <laughs> nice Racism is, is about how... Um, People, liberals particularly, but progressives and also the woke are actually the worst racists. Um, Yes, because um, we're constantly all perpetuating racism by trying to be nice to people. So, you know, again, she does her normal thing where um, everything is wrong. So people disagreeing with her in her classes are wrong. People um, smiling and nodding are wrong. They're being passive aggressive, apparently. So even smiling can be racist. Oh, and there's a a whole section about how white people oppress black people by smiling at them. So is she suggesting we have to stop being nice to ethnic minority people? (laughs) I mean, where where does this lead? And, And I suppose even my statement earlier that I thought White Fragility was a bad book, she would interpret as evidence of White Fragility. Yes. And therefore evidence that her book is, the thesis is correct. That, that would be the only reason that you would criticise it, yeah. Not that it's just a shoddy book, which it is. Yeah, <laughs> this is the problem when there can't be any legitimate criticism. Yeah. And this stuff, I mean, I, I think I'm fairly immune to it, but after I'd, I'd just read um, in, in, in depth and analysed a chapter of Nice Racism, I went out and there was a black lady with the most gorgeous toddler and I smiled at her and then I thought, <gasps> yeah. am I, uh, was that a, because that because she was black and because I was trying to be, show the how not racist I am because I'm actually racist and perpetuating racism. And I, oh my God. You, you mustn't let D'Angelo get into your head. <laughs> no. That's a dangerous thing to have. That's the problem. That's why I feel that a lot of this stuff is so divisive. Because yeah. it makes us, uh, well, it, it re-racializes society. It makes us hypersensitive to race and not that we shouldn't, be aware when there's racism going on, but, but, but we start to interpret every potential interaction with, between the races as a racist thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's, you know, the, the concept of colour blindness, and this is um, something else people argue about, and, and liberals, we have this problem with um, where we argue for colour blindness, and this yeah. is understood, misunderstood by the woke, the critical social justice activists, as a belief that we literally don't see colour and we don't actually see racism. But no one's saying that. No, it's a principle that you don't evaluate people by their race. If yes. you have this principle where evaluating people by their race is wrong, you are going to notice when somebody is evaluating someone by their race. Yes. Being Having a principle of colour blindness means you notice 
when people aren't being colorblind, when they're actually being racist and you object to it. Yes, the problem with colorblind is a metaphor and uh, the theorists aren't very good with metaphors <laughs> because they tend to take them literally. But that's also quite a maddening thing is that actually the, the idea of colorblindness as an ideal is quite a beautiful ideal, mm -hmm. is that we just treat everyone the same and that, you know, and, and it's not to deny racism or to pretend that we don't see color, um, but to abandon that really fundamental liberal principle strikes me as really dangerous. But also what worries me about this stuff is, and, and the reason why I think so much of what you're doing is so important is because we have to understand a way through the linguistics here, the language, because so much of the, the uh, territory and the debate is about, is how theorists redefine words, redefine ideas, and they deny that they're doing so while they're doing it. So if we take, you mentioned critical race theory, and for a long time, when um, a lot of people were starting to read more about critical race theory and realise what it was, they would then start saying, I've had this online, people saying critical race theory is just about legal scholarship. That's all it is. So when you're talking about it in schools, that means you just don't understand it. Mm -hmm. And of course, critical race theory has its origins in legal scholarship, mm -hmm. but it now very much is being applied explicitly to schools. Brighton Council explicitly said they were implementing critical race theory. There are hundreds of books about critical race theory in education. Ideas evolve and change and are readapted and reapplied. Yeah. And yet we get this kind of revisionism from activists where they, well, I've said it before, they deny that they ever used woke to describe themselves. They will deny that critical race theory is, is being applied elsewhere, even though we can see that it is. They do this gaslighting where they'll, they'll just continually deny the reality, the observable reality before your eyes. So how do we possibly, firstly, how do we argue with that? And how do we uh, get beyond this, the outright denial of what we can see is going on? So I think there's a tiny sort of layer of very clever sophists who know precisely what they're doing and they're going to play these games with language. Yes. And then there's a much larger group of um, progressively minded people who want to do the right thing uh, but haven't aren't very knowledgeable about these theories and haven't completely bought into them. Mm -hmm. So the thing that we do is we keep arguing with them, even if they are not actually arguable with, even if we won't make a dent in them, we keep arguing because there's so many more people who are looking for the right way, a productive and ethical way to address racism and yes. sexism and homophobia. And we keep showing that this isn't the way. But, but it's so difficult because, for instance, let's take a phrase like whiteness. I will see academics like Priyamvada Gopal and people, that, uh, some of these academics who tweet like teenagers, right? There's a lot of them. And they will use whiteness in such a way, they say it's just about a discourse. Whiteness is just about a discourse that upholds a certain form of power. But then every now and then they'll use it and they're clearly talking about white people. But then they will deny that it relates to skin colour. And they have it both ways. And they sort of play on the fact that they can say these very prov provocative things uh, as Priyamvada Gopal said, white lives don't matter as white lives, right? Well, if you really break down what she's saying there, then you see what she's getting at. But she knows by putting that on Twitter, it's going to be misinterpreted. Yeah. And, and so she can have the antagonistic thing. Yeah. And she's got plausible deniability, if you know what I mean. So these, these, these phrases, this jargon, is almost like a, a form of assault or a, a way to attack. 
This is what we're dealing with at the moment. We're dealing with, I think, an attempted cultural revolution that operates on the level of language, of attitudes, of of culture and symbolism. Mm. And so it really needs people to understand how it works and and sort of fight back at it yes. using its its own terms. Yeah. In a in a strange way, this is I mean, this is cultural studies. This is what I study i'm studying discourses yeah but i'm studying the discourses and the power dynamics of critical social justice yeah and we need more people to be able to break those down to not get dragged down those rabbit holes yes and be confident to actually just say um i don't share those premises and yeah. um, so i i i can't agree with what you said there um rather than trying to follow them down the well, that's, that's the problem, is that, and particularly I see it from the academic activists, is because they use the jargon as a, as a means to assert their power because people get lost. Yeah. You know, and, I, and, and even though the ideas they're expressing aren't particularly sophisticated, they are dressed up in language that sounds very sophisticated. And, that, and, that, and people get put off, you know. I mean, we're trying to elucidate some of these ideas here, but I think it's quite off-putting, a lot of it. It is. And, I mean, this is one of the, the things that I'm writing at the moment, so it's ended up a massive, massive chapter, is the common talking points, how to understand what is meant if somebody um, starts saying, uh, talking about whiteness and um, as a, a pervasive power system, what yes. are they actually talking about? How can you respond to this? Yes. And trying to... Because as you say, it isn't sophisticated, it isn't complicated, it's just dressed up in a lot of sophistry and subterfuge. And that that helps it to to be disseminated, because let's take an example of Mm anti-racism. So if you're at a workshop at school, a trainer, uh, someone's come in to give an inset day or something and train the teachers in anti-racism, and you stand up and say, I have a problem with this concept, it sounds like you're for racism, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Because of the phrase anti-racism. But that's not what that means, does it? No, and this is what I think is so presumptuous about movements calling themselves social justice or or anti-racism is the implication that everybody else is not is yes. social justice or anti-racism. Can, can you can you dis- define for us what what is meant by anti-racism? So anti-racism, I mean, I call it now critical social justice approaches to anti-racism. Which yeah, again, again, trips off the tongue. Not very catchy, <laughs> but um, yeah, the, the anti-racism takes as its starting point that racism is um, ubiquitous, it's ordinary, it's everywhere, that we have to be trained to see it, that yeah. we have to counteract it. We can either be racist, depending on whether you're going with um, Kendi, yeah. you can either to be racist or anti-racist there isn't such a thing as being neutral just not being racist so not being racist is a form of racism yeah you're um you're then supporting racist policies essentially and this is ibram x kendi who wrote how, how to be an anti-racist yeah so, so he's saying that <laughs> okay but you see a lot of people don't when they have anti-racist training so i always used to i would i would describe myself as anti-racist yeah so then when someone comes in and says I'm going to teach you to be an anti-racist. I think, well, I am anti-racist. And then they're saying, no, that's not what we mean by this. Yeah. So <laughs> how do you, what do you, because you have to sort of have a long conversation. I'm about writing this. a thing at, at the moment, why being pro-liberal rather than anti-woke is better. And, I, and anti-racism is, is a good example of this. 
if you define yourself in opposition to something yeah. and then you define that thing, racism, as a system of power plus privilege yes. and you do it Another in very theoretical yeah, yeah, yeah. then you do it in very theoretical ways then anyone who isn't accepting that we are actually all socialized into racism and that white supremacy permeates everything and isn't committed to affirming their own racism if white and dismantling it yeah. isn't doing anti-racism properly okay and yeah none of that is in the title no, exactly. <laughs> so, I would say, yeah, what we want is pro-racial equality. Because if you're going for pro-racial equality, that's a much simpler thing. As soon as you start, you stop um, aiming at the equality. And as soon as you start evaluating people by race, you've lost the mission. You can, you can self-correct. You can bring yourself back. Okay, because I was trying to think of the best synonym for woke, given that the word woke is so fraught. The best thing I can come up with is anti-liberal, which is, I think, what it is. I think at heart is what it is. Um, and you make a very interesting distinction. I've seen you write about this or read some of your articles about this. You want to make a distinction between critical social justice, which we've been describing, and liberal social justice. And this, of course, is what you've just been describing as the positive, you know, putting forward a positive label for something. Can you, can you explain what that distinction is between critical social justice and what you call liberal social justice? Okay, so with the, the critical approach is the, the one that makes the assumptions about the invisible systems of power and privilege. Yes. It denies individual agency. Yes. It denies universal um, rights and principles and, and rules and expectations that yeah. belong to everybody. Liberalism is focused on the individual and removing any barriers that could stand in their way, yeah. which could include race or gender. Yeah. Um, it's about pluralism, acceptance of a lot of different ideas that can exist. You don't have to accept that they're all right. You just have to tolerate their existence. Yeah. And universalism is essentially applying the same rules to the same people. And the idea of viewpoint diversity, where you can actually argue um, ideas out and come to um, knowledge and moral progress. The best book for this, I, I will always think, is Jonathan Rauch's Kindly Inquisitors, okay. in which he looks at how allowing people to express Holocaust denial and um, homophobic views yeah. resulted in such strong arguments coming back against them yes. that anti-Semitism and homophobia were overcome extremely rapidly in yes. historical terms yes. that are those arguments they were just bad yeah um, yeah. the anti-semitic and homophobic ones well, because so this, you can't defend an unreasonable position no so this is the liberal social justice is the one that says we are going to be pro um equality this means being anti inequality like yes. anti-racist anti-sexist but as a byproduct of being pro equality so yes. if we <laughs> no, that's a very interesting and very clear because one of the things you do at Counterweight when, when people come to you and say, I'm having this trouble at work, is you say, emphasise your commitment to opposing racism, opposing inequality, that kind of thing. Yes, yeah. immediately. Say, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that you're um, looking at um, racism in the organisation and trying to make sure nobody's being discriminated against. Yeah. I have some concerns with this method. Here are the reasons why. Yes. Um, now, that's a, a good way in. And then you offer to cooperate. You offer to help with um, more effective initiatives. Yes. This gets a negotiation going. It doesn't make your employer... 
um, as defensive, mm -hmm. uh, and you've got a chance of shifting things. And we have, particularly in the UK, a, quite a, a high success rate yeah. of getting people to actually negotiate with their employer to keep their workplace open to viewpoint diversity, not to impose a particular critical social justice view on absolutely everybody. Is that because a lot of the employers don't understand what it is they're propagating? Yes. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at these different types of problems that mm. crop up in workplaces. And one of the biggest ones is the managers and the HR box tickers, the people who want to do the right things. Yeah. And they they may also be yet very motivated towards having a racially inclusive workplace. Yes. But they don't really understand the theories. Yeah. And so we've had some frustrating situations where one of our clients was trying to say, um, Ibram X. Kendi says that you can only be racist or anti-racist. And the HR was saying, no, he doesn't. Here's the page where he says it. No, <laughs> no, that's a right-wing myth. Here's the book. Look, yeah. he says it here. <laughs> and we, you know, trying to get through um, to people if they don't want to hear. And we're calling them the buzzword wafflers. Yeah. And that <laughs> is when people will go to their HR and they will try and say, here are my problems. I would like you to clarify these three issues. Assure me of these three things. Yeah. They get a load of word salad. They yes. get invited to a meeting. Yes. You follow it up with an email saying, yes, but can you confirm yeah. Yeah. that you know, you're yeah. not going to do unconscious bias training yes. where you try to access my mind? Can you confirm you're not going to make white people affirm that they're racist or black people affirm a certain experience of racism? Yeah. Yes. Can you confirm that you're you're not going to segregate people by race in any way? Yes. And, um, you know, just trying these very simple questions, getting, trying to get clear answers. And this is how we've managed to get quite a few employers to, to back off yeah. and to soften their approach, which when they're not challenged, they haven't really done. Because I spoke to a teacher recently who said that the, the, the black children in the school were taken out, separated and spoken to to ask about their ex experiences. He said this caused a lot of resentment from the other children of all ethnicities saying, you know, why couldn't we be involved? And he's, he said he's seen an effect in the school. He even saw a child who got in trouble immediately accusing the teacher of racism uh, when it had absolutely nothing to do with race. So this stuff isn't helpful in terms of of race. Um, at the American school in London, they were segregating children by skin colour for after school activities. And, the, you know, and if you're told that, we're, well, we're segregating the kids uh, to tackle racism, then it's hard to come back and say, I, I think you're being racist. Or I think not, not being racist, because racism implies a racist intention, but I think you're, you're heightening racial tension rather than help hindering it, you know? When we hear from um, parents of white children um, who are having all this in schools, what they are worried about is that their children are being taught that they hold racist views. Yes. Um, when at home they've been taught that racism is, is wrong. Yes. So one father described his little boy who is being taught this far too early, coming in saying, we, we were in charge of everybody and, and the black people and they apparently lay on the floor and, and pretended to be um, sort of knocked out. And it was yeah. this, it's a little boy, he can't understand this, but all of a sudden he knows there's a war between white people and black people and yeah. the white people were better and, and it was a completely confusing thing. And they had to essentially remind him no this is a very bad thing we don't judge people by their race yeah yeah but from the black parents and particularly even more so the south asian parents there's this element of feeling insulted yeah by being told that you are recognized as a second class citizen 
Yes. And having children told that they are recognised as second-class citizen. So people come to you at counterweight, for ethnic minority people who say they're having bad experiences yeah. as well. I mean, one, one of our... I'm upset this week, and I, I think he's going to go to the papers with it, so he won't mind me telling you. He's a, a black engineer... He's leaving his very prestigious job for a smaller one because we've tried to help him for, for months to get them to stop doing all of this racial nonsense, racialising him. Yes. And um, we haven't had any success, and so he's he's just going to leave. Right. Because it's, it's unbearable. If you're just used to being an individual, going yeah. to work, being known by your name, then all of a sudden you're, there's this racial tension all around you. I mean, that's, yes, exactly. That can be horrible. And do you, what do you think is the best way for, pe- for people to tackle this? Is it simply a question of numbers that when enough people speak out, when enough people object, this will end? Because the reason I, I imagine why, why this is spreading so quickly is that if you do object, you run the risk of being called a racist. Yeah. And we've, been, we've already discussed how terrible that is and how, how that could be crippling for your career and everything else. And something that a lot of people don't realise is that quite often if you're one of very few racial minority people in a workplace, yes. you feel like it's your responsibility to challenge the anti-racist training yes. because you have the power to do so and the white people are all too scared to do it. Yes. Then having to do that is actually limiting you in advancing in your job. Yes. And this is, is what the engineer said to us. I'm on my own. Yeah. Here, because none of the white people um, feel able to say anything. Yeah. I'm having to, to deal with this. I'm fighting it all the time. I'm not getting my work done. Yeah. Um, they are disadvantaging me yeah. by putting me in this position. So what would you advise people if they are facing this kind of stuff at work in terms of approaching you? I know your website has lots of great resources, templates for letters that people can write to their bosses, because obviously the, the wrong reaction is to go and have a go at your boss or get, you know, get defensive there's a way to do it, isn't there? And this is where you can help, right? Yes. So um, with the handbook that we're writing at the moment, we're looking at that sort of five different ways in which you, you can approach. You can approach very gently, questioningly. That's the way you should go in the first time. Assume good intentions. Assume your manager doesn't really know what they're, they're doing and yeah. they, they just want to make things better. And how you can um, sort of escalate while continuing to be polite, yeah. while continuing to be reasonable, stress your commitment to anti-discrimination policies Um, but um, get firmer and firmer provide evidence and and provide um, examples of how this this isn't benefiting the people it's meant to be benefiting yes and you found in your experience that a lot of employers are responsive to this kind of approach they are it takes time and i you know there's a difference between the uk and the us because there's a lot of no cause firing laws in yeah. the us we're very wary of telling any us um, employee to make too much of a nuisance of themselves because they can just be fired and that's that yeah okay, okay. in the uk we encourage people to be patient, polite, but persistent. Yeah. Because if your problem is an HR box ticker, which it probably is, yeah. um, making more of a nuisance to your of your yourself to them than the people pressuring them to go for some kind of unethical and counterproductive training yeah. thing is likely to to work to make them back down and, and keep it more open. Can you give us some sense of the extent of this problem? Because um, I wrote an article about 
critical race theory seeping into schools. And, and part of the reason I did that is because I, I, I know a lot of teachers. I used to be a teacher. I'm contacted by teachers, often teachers I don't know, who tell me about, you know, they've been told to read Robin D'Angelo, they've been told to talk to children about white privilege. All this. So this stuff is going on. Um, I don't believe all these teachers are lying to me that it's a big hoax. I don't, I, I, I can't see that that's the case. So no, what's, what's I, the extent? I wouldn't know what the extent is. Obviously, people aren't writing to me to tell me there's no authoritarian social justice problem in their organisation. Yes. Yeah. So I'm only hearing from the people who are, but there's a, an awful, awful lot of them. When the, at the height of it, are. With the, after the death of George Floyd and the um, protests, yeah. I was getting hundreds of emails. Some of my colleagues were getting thousands of emails yeah. um, a day. And it, it's, it seems to be rising its head. If, if I speak to anybody, they, they tend to know what, what's happening. I went to my hairdresser and um, she asked, what is it that you're writing about then? And I yeah. said, well, it's cancel culture. And she said, what's that? And I said, well, it's when you um, get into trouble for saying the wrong thing about race or gender or something. And she yeah. said, oh, that thing where we can't say anything anymore and we're, we're all scared about um, yes. talking about things. I was like, yes, yes, see, you know. She, you know, she yes. wouldn't know this as cancel culture or critical social justice or postmodernism. Yeah. But she knows. But that's, in, that's interesting, isn't it? Because that phrase she uses is often denigrated, oh, you can't say anything in, anymore. Because obviously that's not literally true. <laughs> People can say what they want. But what that is is someone who doesn't know the jargon uh, trying to find a way to express the, the point that she, she's aware that there are certain innocuous, well-intentioned things she could say at work that would nonetheless get her fired. Yeah. That's what that is. And so to, just to de denigrate that isn't fair. And I think what's really good about what you're doing is it, it makes it accessible. It, you know, it, it makes people, it arms people so they understand the origins of this stuff uh, and, and how dangerous it is and, and how to push back against it effectively. Yes, and I think as well for some people, it's much more difficult to get their heads around it than for others. Yeah. We have a positive flood of engineers and computer technicians. Yeah. And I don't think that's because there's a particular problem in engineering or computers. Yeah. I think it's because these are particularly analytical problem-solving thinkers with yes. a fair proportion of people who are on the autistic spectrum yeah. who find it particularly difficult to get their heads around this counterintuitive intuitive unfalsifiable yeah. theoretical narrative yes. and they're getting themselves into trouble yes for saying the wrong thing yes yeah. and because they've got this mindset where you know they're engineers or they're they're data programmers they they want they fix things they make things work yeah yeah that's how their brains work so trying to to work around this and what would you say to people though i mean uh, the teachers i've spoken to i'm going back to teaching just because that's my most direct experience a lot of them do admit they're worried about their promotion prospects. If they rock the boat, if they're the one to stand up and say, actually, if you, if you start segregating the kids by race, you're going to make racism worse. If they're the ones who say, you know, we have to have a conversation about this, well, they're not going to get the next head of sick form job or the next, you know what I mean? What do you say to those people? Because they've got a point. They have. I mean, there's... Um Subtle ways of trying to sound out your colleagues. We've found that a lot of times if people 
can take even the slightest move yeah. of not um, agreeing or raising the gentle questions, one of their colleagues is likely to come up to them and start sounding them out. They're going yeah. to discover there are more people in their organizations who share their concerns than uh -huh. they thought. Yes. And this can build up to something. We have a teacher's case at the moment and it it it's horrifying. Uh, after this um, American-based anti-racist training, which included the claim that white people aren't fully human, um, yeah, um, then nearly 40% of the teachers in an anonymous poll said that they were racist. And this was what they had been taught in, in this. So this teacher is being very brave yeah. and he is raising a complaint. He's saying 38% of the teachers in this school are racist and we have children who aren't white. We need to investigate the school yeah. right now. We need to close it down, um, find out why there's so much racism here. Now, you know, there's a, a level of disingenuousness. Yeah, of course, of course. Well, they're take, taking them at their word, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. And he is raising a petition from the parents to yeah. say, is this what you want the teachers to be taught? Do you want them to be taught that they are racist yes. and to actually start believing that they believe your child, who isn't white, is inferior? Because yeah. that's what they're being convinced. Yeah. I suppose it, it has an element of disingenuousness about it insofar as similar to when Princeton University claimed to be systemically racist. And so the Department of Education said, well, that's against the law. Yes. And, you know, obviously that was a bit of a trick. Yes. But it makes the point, doesn't it? That if you're going to make these claims about yourself, that's, you know, that's not good. And, and there's a truth underlying it. I don't think that the teachers who said they were racist were saying so in order to virtue signal. It was anonymous. Yeah. They were... They had actually internalized that it was it is virtuous to believe yourself to be racist. Yes. If you believe yourself to be racist, then you start believing that you actually think black people or brown people aren't as clever or are more likely to be criminals. And if you start believing that you believe that, then you believe that. Then you yeah. are racist. Yeah. Which is a, so this is creating racism. Yes, then. it's training people to be racist if you convince them that they actually are. So then how, let's take another example of the unconscious bias training, for instance, mm. because a lot of people that I uh, talk to are concerned about that. They have to do these unconscious bias tests, which are, are supposed to identify this kind of latent racism or homophobia or whatever else it might be. And you've done a lot of writing about this and you, you know, the research is pretty clear on this, that unconscious bias training doesn't work, right? Am I right about that? Yes, there's a number of problems with it where it doesn't show what it's alleged um, to show. People, It doesn't show that people do actually hold racist views. It doesn't relate to their behaviour. It doesn't test the same at different times of the day on the, by the same person. So you get different results depending on when you take it? Yes, you, you, you can get completely different results if you took it in the morning or the afternoon. Which would suggest that the test is flawed, right? Yes, that one of the um, creators of the test has stressed that it does not work. Okay, so, so in that case, why is it that people are expected still to take it? Because there's still this, I mean, when people talk about unconscious bias, they're usually talking more broadly and they're talking about having been socialised into to mm. things. So they're still using the implicit association test, which is underlying unconscious bias training yeah. to a certain extent. But there's more focus on unconscious bias, which is that you 
as a white man will be racist, you will be sexist, whether or not you acknowledge that you believe yourself to be intellectually superior to me, you do believe that and you must own it and you must express it, otherwise you can't possibly dismantle it in yourself. Well, in that case, that even to take the test is an acknowledgement, well, the test itself is a kind of, uh, it, it, it makes a religious assertion from the outset, doesn't it? It makes a kind of, or not religious, but a, a, a un, something that cannot be proven to be false, mm. which is to say that you're all, you all have racism within you. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's where it starts from. Mm. It starts from the position that you have to dismantle your whiteness, that it is absolutely impossible not to have been socialised into believing yourself to be superior. So if someone were to want to counter this at the workplace, how do they do that without being accused of the very things that the test aims to identify? We can find a number of ways around this. So usefully, for example, they, um, if you are claiming that people cannot choose not to be racist. You are yeah. denying that they have free will. Right. This goes against all three of the Abrahamic religions. Okay. So if... Um, so it could be discriminatory. Yes. That's something that we can bring up. Obviously, that there isn't a great deal of sympathy for white Christians, but if we yeah. have a South Asian Muslim yeah. who says, um, you know, God gave me free will to choose whether to sin or not to sin, and um, racism is sinful, I choose not to do it. I believe other people can choose not to do it. Yeah. You can't tell him he's not allowed to believe that. Right. Okay. So the thing to bring it down to is that if you are claiming um, everyone is socialised into racism, you are denying free will. Yeah. And that is a philosophical belief which is protected. Now, yes. whether it's legally protected or not is still a matter in, in question. Lawyers are being cagey about it, but yeah. you can certainly argue for it. I have the right to believe in free will. Yeah. And liberals believe in it, conservatives believe in it, personal responsibility Marxists believe in it. Yeah. It's only the critical social justice people. And, and they are a minority, right? They are. They just have a lot of power. Yeah. Uh, generally, it is best to just straightforwardly say, I think this is unethical because of this. But sometimes you do, can be a bit clever and just kind of twist the... Um, play them at their own game and um, problematise the problematizers until they... Um, Yes, but in order to do that, you have to understand what it is you're talking about. And that's where your work comes in. And it's Counterweights, but what's the website where people can go to this for the resources and all the rest of it and contact you indeed? Counterweightsupport.com. And they'll be, able to, they'll be able to get in touch with you there. And also... Yeah, there's a contact us. Great. And there's also a lot of very useful videos on that website. Yep. If you go down to the YouTube icon, um, yeah. you'll see a lot of um, short sort of informative videos on alternative forms of diversity training, how to avoid becoming what you hate, why unconscious bias training doesn't work. All um, of the, the information people need to arm themselves against this. Yeah, and sort of digestible five to ten minute um, chunks for people who are just trying to, to get their heads around the, the, the culture of it. Yep. Well, Helen, it's so important, I think, what you're doing. And thank you for helping everyone out there who needs the help. Um, and they can also read, of course, your excellent book, Cynical Theories, which was co-written with James Lindsay, which uh, uh, talks about what we were discussing is where it came from. And I think that's a good, that's a good uh, basis of knowledge to have, isn't it? To know where this has come from, where it's originated. There is. Now, some people found it a little bit too dense, and so there is a remixed and simplified version coming out. Okay. It's been adapted by a young adult writer, and it is aimed at young adults, but um, I think it'll be useful for, for adults who um, also just found it too dense, yes. the, the original. 
And that's great because also a lot of this does affect young people. Yes. And when's that coming out? That should be coming out in the next couple of months. Great. And then the Counterweight Handbook, which is going to break down how this manifests in in reality and uh, different ways you can address it, letter templates and etc. That that should be coming out in the spring of next year. Fantastic. Well, Helen, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on the Free Speech Nation podcast. Uh, If you enjoyed the episode, Please do like and subscribe and make sure you join us next week where we'll have another fantastic guest. Goodbye.